0: Welcome back to Success and More Interesting Stuff. The automotive industry is being turned on its head. The arrival of the internet, followed by the introduction of electric vehicles, the emergence of Tesla and the prospect of driverless vehicles has changed the playbook for all existing players. Even the sleepy old second-hand car market that was the bread and butter for car salesmen has been blown to pieces. Sitting in the middle of this upheaval is Australia's largest vehicle retailer, Eagers Automotive, and its long-term managing director, Martin Ward. Ward joined Eagers 15 years ago and has enjoyed a share price appreciation of over 700 per cent, compared to the paltry gain of only 35 per cent by the All Ordinaries Index. In fact, the company is a top 20 performer of the ASX over the last 20 years. He has not only been the consolidator of the Australian retail industry, but he has been at the vanguard of the blistering change. He is determined not to become the next Kodak or Fairfax, prepared to turn his business upside down, to stand on the winner's podium after the hurricane of change blows through. I first met Martin when he took the role of CEO at AP Eagers, a small automotive group controlled by the legendary Nick Politis. At the time, the car retail industry was made up of thousands of independently owned dealerships around the country. The online behemoth, car sales, was not even listed, and life was moving gradually along. Today, Eagers is the largest listed player, with a market capitalisation of over $3 billion. Taking out its biggest competitors, Automotive Holdings and South Australian-based Adtrans.
1: Well, hello, Martin. Thanks for coming in. Thank you. All sounds pretty dramatic.
2: Oh, it sounds dramatic when you put it in uh, those perspective. It's uh, uh, an industry that's had a lot of uh, um, small changes over the years, and uh, is probably uh, now about to have its biggest change in the next decade from a retailing point of view, and also from a product point of view from the partners that we represent.
1: Yep. So let, let's let's go back and let's look at the landscape today for the auto industry, and in particular, what it impacts you. First, we had car sales come, came along and listed, and I think that was in about in 2009, and that sent a bit of a wave through the industry. But even the manufacturers have changed over the years. We've seen Toyota rise and rise, along with a couple of other brands like Mazda and VW, and good old Australian brand Holden has virtually disappeared. What, was it a case that the industry needed a change? Was there too many brands and just trying to make a profit that probably wasn't there for a small market like Australia? Oh,
2: look, there are definitely a lot of brands in Australia. Australians have a very wide choice of car brands. Uh, there are 65 car brands represented in Australia, and yet, believe it or not, In a market that's 16 times larger in the US, there are only 44 car brands represented. So, uh, yes, it's a very crowded market. Uh, There is room for a wide choice of um, uh, motor vehicle um, uh, brands, but the business model has to be right and the scale and structure of the infrastructure to be able to represent Uh, some of the smaller brands needs to be uh, very carefully considered uh, rather than attempting to build large dealer networks. So uh, the industry is changing from uh, a cost base of what has uh, been very, very large over the last uh, 20 years or so and has got larger and larger over the last 20 years and the total cost base is being reconsidered by all OEM um, our partners and by all retailers of automotive retailing uh, brands in Australia.
1: And I've, I've heard you say on a number of occasions that the big glass boxes that little, litter our capital cities are going to at least reduce, if not disappear. And in the meantime, AP Eagers, as it was Eagers Automotive, have been the pioneers of a massive new site that will have multiple brands near Brisbane Airport, which is which is something totally new, probably totally new globally. So, do the glass boxes disappear?
2: Well, they don't disappear completely, Matthew, but they reduce in number. So, we've been working on for about a decade uh, trying to ha- how do we um, how do we build a model that's completely consumer centric that gives a better customer experience but in a more commercially sustainable model uh, for the operators of retailing and for the makers of uh, car brands. And effectively, there is, in every capital city, every 7 to 10 kilometres, there is a standalone glass box for every brand, and these glass boxes are on six to 10,000 square metres on main capital roads. So what's likely to occur... Don't know the precise time frame, but somewhere between five and ten years from now, you're likely to see um, maybe half those glass boxes remain and half of them disappear. But the ones that disappear won't necessarily just disappear and there'll be no alternative representation. The alternative representation will be omnichannel. It will there are a lot of online sales will occur over the next 10 years and it will be complemented by some traditional glass boxes. It'll be complemented um, by some boutique retailing, and I'll mention in a moment about our auto mall within a shopping mall, and then it will be complemented with some major um, alternate facilities, and that um, allows me to mention what's happening at the uh, Brisbane Airport. The Brisbane Airport is on the junction of three major motorways, one north, one south, and one into... Um, the CBD uh, through the tunnel. And effectively, what we're building there, so let me just, uh, Brisbane Airport are building a world-class racetrack. And this world-class racetrack, which has been um, described as Disneyland for motoring enthusiasts by Mark Scaife, who's involved in the project, it is... Um, so it's going to include a CAMS-accredited 2.4-kilometre uh, two point racetrack. It's got a skid pan, it's got a slalom course, it's got a kick plate, it's got a low-friction ice driving and a 4x4 four four course. Through professional instructor-facilitated test driving, you'll be able to ev- you'll be able to go on this track up to 10pm under lights every night of the week. This is an area out near the airport where there's no residential. So this track alone, which is no cost to us as a retailer, is a particular draw card for um, enthusiasts. But then let's look at what we're doing from a retailing point of view. We're building between 12 and 16. It was going to be 12. We've got a lot more interest now as the project gets closer. And Matthew, you'll know that we committed to this land six or seven years ago. So the reality is we've been working on this for a while, but it's now getting closer to fruition. So we will be building on a podium, and the podium is effectively one storey high. We will be building our retailing on this podium that will have full visibility of the entire track. We overlook the skid pan specifically in the area that we've taken, and this allows us to have a unique viewing platform. But also, even though you're going to have each of these 12 to 16 brands that are going to have still a separate showroom to represent and to do justice to each of the brands, you will then have a hub area that will be an area where there's food and beverage, there'll be interactive displays. Instead of having something like a museum, like we've seen at some of the auto malls in the US, we're going to have a curated gallery. So sometimes uh, that gallery would have things like Tour de France Month where there might be um, cycling inside that gallery. It might be Christmas. There might be other things. We will change that gallery rather than having a set uh, museum. It's got a playground. It's got a book and gift store. It's got uh, pop-ups. It's got a range of other uh, partner offerings in the hub of the retailing. And then all the brands sit either side. Of this, so it really is going to be Disneyland for a retailing experience, as well as Disneyland for enthusiasts.
1: They'll have too much to do to buy cars. But when when will it open?
2: Well, so it is still two years away, because or maybe two and a half years away. We don't get the land till uh, mid uh, to late twenty twenty one, and then it's between a twelve and twenty four month build. But mm-hmm. Matthew, we are. Uh, We've been in Newstead for 100 years. We are building this. We've got uh, access to this land for 76 years. So we're building this for the long term. We're very, very excited. But you and I have also talked about what complements it. Um, Mm -hmm. Through the tunnel and into the CBD and out the other side, out to Western Brisbane, is the Indripoli Shopping Centre. We will have an auto mall inside a shopping mall. Now, most people in Australia and globally have seen the occasional Mercedes-Benz or Porsche or uh, brand, Subaru is in Chadston in in Victoria, have seen an occasional car brand, next door to a country road or a JB Hi-Fi. This is a little bit unique. This is gonna be eight to 12 brands inside a shopping mall As a complete auto mall, a bit more like a Harvey Norman, you'll go into the auto mall and there'll be Subaru, there'll be Honda, there'll be Jaguar, Land Rover, there'll be Porsche and a range of other brands that are committed to this auto mall inside a shopping mall. There will be a service department on the roof. You'll be able to come from an escalator directly from the rooftop service department directly down into the auto mall. It's going to be highly convenient. You're going to be able to do things there associated with automotive retailing while you do your other shopping as well. And you might look at cars more frequently when you're there in the same way that we are trying to build the experience out at the airport. And let's just talk about for a second the internet and retailing. We're no different than every other retailer. A lot of retailing is moving online. However, if you're going to have physical retailing, our view is it's sure as hell got to be exciting. And that's what I'm really describing in these two sort of setups, uh, Matthew. But there's three things. You need to be extremely convenient for your customer. You need to have a lot of choice when the customer's there and you need to offer this experience. And we believe the auto mall inside the shopping mall and the auto mall at the airport actually ticks all three of those boxes. And then it's going to be complemented by an improvement in our online web offerings. It's going to be complemented in the case in Brisbane by a large ex-Bunning site that we're turning into a 50-bay workshop.
1: So that then, Martin, you've got then you've got the Tesla experience, which has turned the automobile world upside down again. And they seem to be, as you said before, there's, there's certain car showrooms that sit next to upmarket retail concepts. And we see them in Sydney next to Bulgari or next to Chanel, with just one or two cars in there. So is that is that another experience? And is that the way of the future?
2: Well, so that's what I would call the boutique offering. And that will be similar in this auto mall, where we'll have between... Uh, two and four cars of every brand that we represent in the auto mall and we'll be rolling those um, uh, those car brands inside the auto mall of course Tesla's only got a couple of models so you're only going to ever at the moment have a couple of offerings inside those malls but uh, effectively they it is it is traditional retailing but in a boutique offering Um, so let's just touch on Tesla for a moment it's a great brand and it's hundred percent electric so the all the current brands of OEMs Mercedes BMW Porsche um, at the top end and then uh, the Volkswagens and the Toyotas and uh, uh, the Mazdas in the mass market area they are all investing heavily into electric vehicles and you are going to see a plethora of different models launched across the globe over the next sort of one to five years from all the existing manufacturers. You could say that they're playing catch up to Tesla, but when they have all their electric vehicles offerings out there, it is our view from being inside the industry that Tesla is a great brand. It has a great product but it isn't going to win the electric car race. It is going to be a brand that is going to be amongst all the other brands. And I do think you're going to see some of the, uh, from an investor point of view, some of the market capitalizations uh, get a lot closer um, uh, as, we, as we move forward. Can I just point out, Matthew, to you, the audience, there is one unique thing in our retailing That doesn't occur in most retailing and that is the fact that most people that are buying a brand new vehicle have a vehicle today and they need to dispose of that vehicle a lot of people call that the trade-in it doesn't matter whether you trade that vehicle in or you sell that vehicle it does make it unique and this is why with that component and the test drive component, this is why we have not moved as fast online such as, say, a bookstore, where you can know exactly what you're getting if you order that um, book over uh, the internet and it arrives in the post. You don't have exactly the same experience on the uh, motor vehicle because you have to sell what you already have, and most people want to test drive the vehicle before they actually buy it. So those two unique components are things that need to be fitted into the experience of your physical retailing to complement what will inevitably move online. So you need less glass boxes. You need some glass boxes. You need some unique experience locations. You need to make the glass boxes that you keep more exciting and then you need some more boutique offerings to cover the gaps for your consumer to have the convenience. Now, all of that that we've modelled and most manufacturers have modelled can actually be done a lot cheaper than the existing model today that has these glass boxes every 7 to 10 kilometres in every major town.
1: Okay, well, that's a good point to start talking about what everyone knows is the second-hand car market, and I think uh, the the industry calls it used car market. You've you've you're looking to change that as well dramatically in in recent times. You've got uh, Easy Auto One Two Three, which you're rolling out around the country, and it's got a fixed price model, which must make used car salesmen turn in their grave, given the whole model's been to haggle to to try, you know, buy a car cheap and sell it out again at a higher price. And all of a sudden you've come along with a fixed price model. So maybe you can tell us a bit about the future of those secondhand cars.
2: Well, look, the fixed price model is a, uh, a model that uh, um, if you price the car uh, to sell on uh, on day one and you price it correctly and you manage the business differently, then you actually end up with a completely different model. There are, um, there are people that believe that the only difference in the model is the fact that it's fixed price. And you have to change a range of other things to be able to get this um, uh, model economically correct. So uh, we do have some cues overseas. Uh, there is a company that's been around for greater than 20 years, which is called CarMax in the US. And then there are some more recent um, uh, examples with Carvana and Vroom. But effectively, Matthew, the difference in the business model, you are you are right, that the traditional model of selling used cars is to uh, price the car at a higher price to try and secure a higher gross, and it costs money to do that. It needs space. It needs trained salespeople. Now, that is the way the business has run for 100 years. The Fixed price model moves vehicles much faster. Why why is that? Because they're priced to sell instantly. And so it moves them faster. You do not need the same infrastructure to be able to um, haggle uh, to be able to sell the used car through the fixed price model. And therefore, you get a significantly higher productivity. And so effectively. You end up with a scenario where you move a lot of cars a lot faster. You don't have the same cost base to be able to sell the number of cars. And so effectively, you can build a different business model with a different cost base, which allows you to sell the cars and move them at actually a slightly cheaper price. So only companies that have scale can succeed in that model? Well, you need the scale to build the uh, different model because this needs to be done on volume. You need a large number of cars to be flowing through. You can't do this on a small... You, you, need, you need a different location to be able to hold a reasonably large number of cars or at least prepare a large number of cars. You need to double your productivity so, in our Easy Auto 123 model, we average around 25 cars per consultant. Now, the consultant is trying to assist the customer to buy the right vehicle, they're not actually negotiating price. So, therefore, the consultant is able to help customers faster and actually is able to sell 25 a month. The benchmark in our traditional industry is only 12 a month, and it's a much more complex process. Each person that sells in the used car um, traditional model and the used car salesman, as you said, each one of them needs to be trained on exactly what price every car is and how they can negotiate and what their abilities are. And effectively, the cost structure is a different cost structure. So if you think about it this way, Matthew, if you can run the setup of this different model on average at more than $1,000 lower per car on a cost basis, then you have got a business model that you can scale because effectively you can actually sell to your customer lower and then ultimately that's how this model grows very, very rapidly
1: the used car salesman might not longer be rated as the least trustful person in the industry.
2: Uh, look, can I? Can I? Even in the it, it, Matthew, even in the US, the uh, CarMax is now selling a million used cars. There are forty-five million used cars sold in the US. The used car salesman is far from dead. The traditional model is far from dead. Even today, Matthew, we're selling around 65,000 used cars in the traditional way, and we're just growing the new way of selling fixed price, and we're probably close to 15,000 on the new way of selling um, through the fixed price model. There is a place for both of those models, but it is a uh, adaption. There's about four million used cars a year that are sold in Australia or change hands in Australia. Not all through dealerships. Some of them are sold private to private, obviously. So the market is a huge market. When you think that we're the largest fixed price player in Australia, and we're still only selling fifteen thousand, and there's four million, is the marketplace.
1: If we talk about it from an investor's point of view, just looking towards the US, which you've, you've. You've you've talked about a few times already. So Carvana, which is relatively new, market cap of something like forty five billion. The older company, like an Auto Nation, which comes from the traditional model, has a market value of closer to five or six billion. And Carmax sits in between. What what is the investor telling you about where you need to be? And do you think they're right?
2: Um, Well. Look, we can only take the cues of the business model from the US. We then have to look at our market and build our business model here. There is no doubt that the CarMax, let's come to Carvana in a minute, but the CarMax model, they are selling just under a million units. I think it was 880,000 is their current run rate, but 880,000 units And they're doing a lot of finance and they're doing um, a lot of um, wholesaling of cars through their auctions and they're making more than a billion dollars profit.
1: Martin, can you put that into perspective? How big is the Australian new and used car markets in volume terms?
2: Well, so um, the new market in Australia is around about a million units at the moment and the new market is between three and a half and four million. That's the second hand market. That's the second hand market, and and maybe another way of looking at it is it's just under two million for under ten year old cars. So so it's a big so it's a big market for us to look. If Easy Auto was to build its model to fifty thousand units and make a thousand dollars net profit per car, then Easy Auto would be making fifty million dollars. That is prize number one. And that is where Eagers is, um, as a starting point, trying to grow from 15000 as effectively still a startup. Um, CarMax and Carvana. Carvana, with that $45 billion market cap, is still losing money every 90 days. So I'm not going to build this model based on Carvana's um, $45 billion there. They've, quite frankly, they have got, to get to a couple of mini, million units a year to justify their current market cap. And
1: why do investors rate them so highly then? What are they doing differently?
2: Uh, look, to be honest, uh, I think the investors have actually got it wrong. I, At the end of the day, the business model of Carvana and Vroom and CarMax are identical with just slightly different execution uh, differences. Uh, at the end of the day... There is the potential CarMax have cracked the $1,000 net profit bottom line per car sold, and that is what we think is the sustainable price in the business model. And, yes, some years it'll be better and some years it'll be lower based on the dynamics of the market, but if you can build a sustainable business model that allows you to buy and sell cars Um, Matthew, one of the things we should point out, whether it's Carvana or CarMax or Easy Auto or Eager's Automotive, every used car we sell, we also buy. So effectively, you are buying and you're buying in a sophisticated way. You are then working out the cost to then sell the car and then you're selling to a different customer so the it's an arbitrage of a thousand dollars net at the bottom line in this new business model if you get it right and we believe that we can get it right in australia we believe carmax have cracked the us we don't think that carmax uh, sorry that carvana is building a business model that will crack greater than a thousand dollars per car so ultimately That's what Easy Auto is is doing. And let's come back to Easy Auto. Easy Auto is sitting at 15000 under the previous company before we took it over. It was in its loss-making phase. It is now better than break-even, and now we need to build this business model from 15,000 units to 50,000 units, and we need to build the economics into the model that allow us to net that $1,000 per car by the time we get to the right scale. And when we get there, Matthew, then there is no reason why we can't go from 50 to 100 to 150, etc. because you're actually selling the cars to the customers in a very transparent way and you are selling the cars to the customers effectively cheaper than the traditional model is selling them the cars. And that is why it's so compelling. It's a win. It's a win-win.
1: But it's interesting what the market's doing. It's putting Tesla on an enormous market value at four or 500000000000 B, and it's got Carvana, which you've outlined the case here on a, on a big uh, valuation. But so it'll be interesting to see whether whether the market's got it right, investors have got it right, or or they've shot out too early and backed certain horses. Now it's probably a good. Point to now, let's talk about the future. We've, we've touched on electric vehicles. They're obviously coming. They're coming over a period. They're, well, they're already here, but they're, they're going to keep coming and all the various manufacturers around the world are introducing different models. But along with electric vehicles comes a few different changes, and, and one of them that may affect eagers is the requirements around parts and services, which has always been a mainstay and a profitable mainstay of any car dealership in Australia. How do you see that panning out with so few moving parts in an electric vehicle compared to the traditional car?
2: Would it be fair to say, Matthew, that we're all reliant on computers today? Uh, How many of us uh, have needed to call a tech guru over the last five years as computers have got more and more complex or as technology and everything's uh, merged I'll say just in the last 30 minutes. I'd say in the last 30 minutes, even setting up for this podcast, my first ever podcast. But so, so so, I think the point here, Matthew, is, yes, there are changes coming, but don't assume that a fully electric vehicle, yes, it's got less moving parts. Um, yes, it has no oil and no oil filter, which is a significant part of the um, servicing within cars. But there is going to be a need to maintain a highly Uh, complex uh, computer i a computer vehicle uh, batteries etc this is going to be something that's going to need a highly trained workforce to be able to manage so we see changes there now we're not afraid of the changes because we are adjusting the cost base through the retailing that we spoke at length at the beginning of this podcast And that is as long as we can adjust our cost base of our entire retailing structure. And just as we talked about the glass boxes, and the main thing I talked about was the glass box, but every one of those glass boxes at the moment has got between 20 and 30 service bays behind them. If you adjust how those glass boxes are structured, you're adjusting how your service departments are structured i've already said there to um earlier on that we're going to have a service department on the top of a uh, of a shopping center roof we're going to have a fifty bay multi branded um bunnings um structure so you're still going to need the structures around Australia to be able to manage look today there's nineteen million motor vehicles on Australian roads phenomenal number nineteen million and Ninety-nine and a half percent of them are not electric today. So it's going to take a long time, even if you start selling twenty or thirty or forty percent electric every year for the next few years. Right? We're not even at one percent electric sales at the moment. If we're at ten percent electric sales for the next ten years, that is one million electric cars that would be sold in Australia. There's still going to be eighteen million petrol. Um, Or diesel cars on the road. Now, let's assume even half of them change. It is just a matter of how you change your structure and your cost base to be able to make an economic commercial return as you adapt your business model. And we're excited by the changes because we actually see, as you mentioned earlier, there's a catalyst for activity. And a retailer makes money when there's activity. And so we're not afraid by the changes that are coming.
1: And the electric vehicle is interesting in the sense that I can, you know, envisage a tipping point where there's enough variety on the market, there's enough brands, the price is right, and all of a sudden we start buying a lot of EVs. So if, if you were to put your estimate hat on, if you go out 15 to 20 years, do you think that the carpool in Australia will be 25%, 30% EVs or it will be much higher because we'll go through that tipping point?
2: Ah. Uh, Look, uh, a lot of it does depend on regulation in both directions, both incentive and disincentive. And, of course, there's not um, a lot announced within Australia. So I don't think Australia is going to decide this. uh, UK has announced that no um, vehicle after 2030 sold brand new will be anything other than electric. That is a, um, you know, that is the stick to the manufacturers to go electric. The CARA, of course, is the big incentives that are currently being offered for the manufacturer and the consumer in the US at the moment. Um, A lot of electric cars in the US being sold today would not be sold without those incentives. So uh, it's hard to answer, Matthew. I I would say that we're going to be dragged along by changes that will occur overseas that will change the manufacturers, rather than uh, Australia being driven specifically by Australian um, uh, by Australian um, decisions politically. But obviously, any of that could change at any moment,
1: and will will depend heavily on the governments involved, no doubt.
2: A- a- absolutely. So, so look, I, let's let's put it this way: if you ask me, what naturally will occur? then I think by 2025 we'll be at 10% sales of electric vehicles and I think that by um, 2030 we're probably going to be closer to 20%. That's if it was purely natural. But I don't think it'll be purely natural, so I think the figures will be larger than that because I think that globally there will be um, um, uh, carrots and sticks that will change that figure to make it more aggressive, but I don't know by how much.
1: And that's how many is being sold in any given year.
2: Absolutely. So even, even at twenty percent, Matthew, that's two hundred thousand a year for say ten years. That's two million. And as I said, there's nineteen million cars on the road.
1: Yeah, in the full car pool. The other elephant in the room, Martin, is the the ongoing search for a driverless vehicle, which seems to be further out there than electric vehicles by some margin. But I suppose in your thinking that comes into it because potentially that is also a threat. I mean, I could imagine I'll have an app on my phone and that I'll just order a car when I need it to go to and from work or to a function or wherever I need to go to go shopping. I don't necessarily need to own a car that sits in my garage. Do you envisage that will be a problem for the next generation of car dealerships and car retailers?
2: Matthew, I am one that embraces technology wherever I can. Uh, I try and have the latest and greatest of everything. But, um, uh, look, you're younger than me, but I don't think <laughs> Not you... Not <quite> <laughs> oh, so well, yeah, But I don't think uh, you and I in our lifetime are going to be ordering a car that's going to pull up driver's lists uh, to our doorsteps. It is being worked on, I accept that, but it's being worked on within a, a global platform of roads and uh, and traffic systems and all sorts of uh, current legacy that I think is going to um, uh, make this very hard to retrofit into our global society. Look, if you build a brand-new city in China and you decide that from scratch you are building the entire city to only occupy and have driverless cars and you build it from scratch, very, very possible and probably, I'll say this carefully, probably very easy sometime in the next 10 years. You try and retrofit driverless cars with other existing cars being driven on our roads and have it mass market within the next 20 years or 30 years, I'd be quite surprised if we're actually going to be there. It's going to be available, but I do not think... Look, electric by 2040 could be um, 80 or 90% of every car sold. Driverless, I still think, is quite a long way away because of the current uh, legacy um, uh, circumstances of the globe. Um but that's a personal view that meant that I've spent a lot of time with Eagers concentrating on the used vehicle model, a lot of time concentrating on the fact that electric vehicles are going to change over the next two decades. But I have not spent one second trying to design the Eagers business model for driverless cars. Well, you
1: also retail trucks, especially since you purchased AdTrans going back a decade or so. What about driverless trucks? Because that's as much about a cost reduction for companies as anything.
2: Yeah, look, and driverless trucks, again, look, on defined um, uh, routes, you're going to be much easier to be able to make something driverless. In fact, I would, um, just jumping back to electric for a second, I'd say um, uh, town deliveries of driverless, uh, sorry, town deliveries of electric um, uh, um, vans. Um, is probably highly likely because of their defined routes rather than consumers who will want to occasionally uh, drive out into the bush. Um, so I do think that in the, um, in the transportation sector of goods, there is a, a chance that some of this technology will appear sooner than it will for the consumer, the general consumer. But, again, I don't know how you fit driverless trucking into a society where you have humans trying to interact with those driverless trucks. So, um, again, Matthew, I know it's being worked on. I don't know where it's going to have a practical application and appear in the globe.
1: Okay, let's go back a bit and let's talk about Martin Ward. I know you can talk about cars and trucks and car retailing uh, for hours on end, but you might find it a bit harder to talk about yourself. But we should know a little bit more about you because you, you've done a, a marvellous job in terms of running what is now Australia's biggest car retailer. So born in the UK, what your upbringing, was it in business or what did your parents do? What got you excited about potentially becoming a manager?
2: Yeah. Um, uh, look, my, my father was a schoolmaster, as they used to call them in those days, and uh, uh, my mother um, was a, a bank teller, bank clerk in, uh, uh, in a um, high street bank. Um, I, I used to, and I think it's still relevant today, um, you know, my mum liked uh, bingo and my dad liked opera. <laughs> Um, And uh, so I always sort of took this view that my dad being a schoolmaster, um, uh, you know, I I feel that I can talk and interact with people in the boardroom, but I can also um, engage and feel extremely comfortable in the workshop uh, on the shop floor. Um, And so I think those are the two things that I get from my parents um, in terms of the um, let's call it the bingo and the opera and the schoolmaster and the bank teller. Um, and uh, um, so, you know, I, I just feel that I've uh, I had an upbringing that allowed me to interact. I'm the oldest of four children. But, look, the truth is there wasn't business talked around the table. My dad was a um, math teacher. My, uh, as I said, my mum was in the bank. But we didn't really talk about business, so it wasn't really on the horizon. A lot of sport in the early days, but uh, uh, not really business. Well, it sounds
1: like there one side of the family was competitive. You're playing bingo <laughs> and talking about sport. Uh, so there wasn't much talk about margins, though. But then, then you, went, you went off to university, I think, in Surrey, which is just south of London. Yeah. Was it, was it then, then that you kind of formulated that you would like to get into the business world?
2: Uh, look, my, my, my two skills came from uh, – uh, were numbers and people. So in sport, I played competitive uh, sport to a reasonably high level and was uh, often um, – uh, or I managed Football, to – tennis? No, no. I was a semi-professional basketball player. And I know I'm only five foot eight. Thank you for um, – Well, uh, what a podcast. I could have told everyone you were six foot six. But... <laughs> no, no. It's okay. Uh, no, I, I – I, um, played for England Juniors when I was at uh, university and uh, um, and I played to a high standard and uh, uh, my dad was an international rugby referee, so uh, um, uh, maybe I got the sporting side from there. Um, so I had a lot of leadership through being captain of the university basketball team and my own school team before that. But effectively, I learned early on that I had two skills, which was numbers from my maths degree and um, people skills from my sport and from my uh, um, uh, captaining of those um, teams that were relatively successful at the time.
1: But then you became a bit of a corporate nomad. You, you, I, I presume you worked in the UK for some time, but you, you joined Inchcape, I think, and, and you went off. You worked in the Middle East. You worked in Asia. A lot, a lot of travelling and a lot of adventuring.
2: Well, uh, look, I left university and joined a large uh, drinks company, uh, Allied Domecq, which is one of the largest in the world. Uh, I got a very, very good grounding uh, in a two-year commercial training program. I will say I was offered three jobs and this was the lowest paid, but it had the best training program. And I do think that was a significant decision in my life. And I learned a huge amount in that two-year training program. The end of a period of time, I did go overseas to the Middle East um, and joined Inchcape in their hospitality drinks division and then grew very rapidly in the Middle East uh, to ultimately run the whole of the Middle East for Inchcape. And then they moved me to Singapore to run their operations. And then finally, because Inchcape was a company that was a global distributor of products, they asked me if I'd come down to Australia to run their car division. I knew nothing about cars. They said, don't worry about that. We want somebody that knows people and numbers, and we've got plenty of people in Australia that know a lot about cars. So that's how I shifted from uh, effectively running a business that was associated with drinks distribution and then moved into a business that was associated with automotive distribution i still don't know one end of a car from another matthew so it's still all about people and numbers
1: so there's a lot of changes there both in in location and industry do you think that change but well for times like these where your core industry now is experiencing a lot of confrontational change
2: uh Look, I I think that some of the things I learned in those global overseas markets have made a big difference to my whole perspective on uh, managing. Uh, When I was in the Middle East, I represented Heineken and uh, uh, Johnny Walker and Budweiser. And, uh, um, you know, within the first three months of moving to the Middle East as a relatively young man, I was at global Heineken conferences. I was at global... Uh, johnny walker conferences and i was understanding what global brands were trying to achieve even though the execution in different markets was obviously different those kind of learnings are very hard to achieve um without being prepared to um uh you know put yourself out there and ex- and go and get these experiences uh, uh i've never um uh, I- i've always remembered how valuable Those kind of experiences were even though I was in a relatively small market in the Middle East.
1: So you ended up in Australia and eventually you went and worked for the Ford Joint Venture Partnership because they did that unusual thing by buying Ford America, bought back the dealerships, and they used Sydney as the test case? Correct. And that was, I gather, a difficult situation because... It, it, it didn't kind of work in the end. They didn't follow through and do it in other cities around the world.
2: Well, they did do – so they did three in the US and then their outside of America test was Sydney, um, uh, Auckland and Perth. <laughs> and effectively, you're right, it failed. Um, and uh, um, and I was the second CEO after four months and when I arrived, it was losing $2 million every 30 days. And wow. uh, um, uh, I had the pleasure of working with a good CFO called Dan Ryan. And uh, uh, Dan and myself have only got one claim to frame, is that $2 million a month, of course, is $24 million a loss a year. Um, our success was getting it to zero four years later so that they could sell wow. it. That's a hard grind. Yep. And
1: and is that where you met
2: Nick Politis? Uh, Look, uh, I had met Nick at Inchcape because Nick was a uh, a Jaguar dealer and Inchcape were the distributors for Jaguar, but I didn't know him that well. Um, I got to know Nick uh, through this role um, when uh, Nick um, encouraged me to uh, talk to the Americans that wanted to put me into this role And so I owe that four hard years uh, to Nick. And uh, uh, but look, we learned so much in that tough environment in that four years that a lot of the advantages that have now occurred in eagers are what we learned in that four years. And in some cases, Matthew, it's what we learned not to do.
1: Yeah, that's always the case, isn't it? You learn from your mistakes. So Nick's been your biggest shareholder at Egos. He got you over to run what was called AP Eagers then. And he's been that way ever since, and he sits on your board. He's obviously played a big role in the company and in supporting you and in the initiatives you take.
2: He certainly has. And let me say, uh, I've worked obviously for a large number of com- companies in multiple countries And uh, I've never had a better boss than Nick Pilatus. I don't always agree with Nick. And if I don't agree with him, I tell him. Um, And I think the best thing that has occurred uh, for both Nick and I over our entire working careers is I think that – Nick is probably the best entrepreneur I have ever met and the best deal maker I've ever met in my life. And I've learned so much about being an entrepreneur and being a deal maker from Nick. I believe that what I've been allowed to do is then add my expertise and my corporate background to what Nick adds. And I hope and really, um, I believe, and I hope others believe that the combination of my background and my skills and the combination of Nick's um, knowledge and ability and background combined have actually resulted in what we've achieved here. Um, I don't think I could have done it without Nick. I don't think he could have done it without me. And uh, I I think it's been a fantastic partnership. I've certainly uh, loved every minute of it.
1: Long-term love affair.
2: Yeah, you could say that, but it's a, it's a business. It's a, well, it's a it's a business affair where you know we we're both extremely passionate about what we believe in, and we're both trying to get the long term result that gets the best outcome for everybody.
1: And Nick won't mind us saying, but he, he's obviously a little bit older again. Well, how does he handle change? Because there is a lot of change going on.
2: Matthew, I'm gonna I'm gonna correct you there for a second because. Uh, um, if you and I outlive Nick, we're going to be doing well, mate. I've got to tell you that. Um, uh, yes, Nick is a little bit older than you and I, but Nick's mum just lived to 102. And if, if I can live as long as Nick, I'll be a very happy man. Um, so and, and one of the things also is that, you know, there's Nick's going to be working, you know, for his entire life uh, because he loves every minute of it. Uh, You can send Nick on holiday for a couple of days and he'll get a couple of days of rest. But uh, after a couple of days, he gets itchy and he gets bored and he uh, phones me from Greece regularly when he goes over there. Um, He has a great time in Greece, but he still he just loves engaging in business. And so I, I think you'll find that Nick will be somebody that's still doing business well into his 90s.
1: Yeah, and, and no doubt he's happy to support the changes that are going on and, and to drive the business because he's always been about the business and, and getting there. So if we, if we now turn it back to eagers, and we've talked about all the changes that are in front of us, does the company have a bright future? You've been there a long time. You've driven it hard. You've given investors uh, like myself an incredible return. Is it got a bright future?
2: Oh, look, I think Eagers is one of the most unique companies uh, in Australia and on the planet. I mean, we're 108 years old in January. The Eagers' success has been the ability to adapt. It, it's about being able to change. And a lot of the things we've talked about on this podcast, Matthew, the changes that are now occurring in automotive retailing. We signed up to the Brisbane Airport, as I said, six years ago. Right, we won't be ready to deliver our first car at the airport for maybe another two and a half to three years. So that's a hell of a long term in terms of the changes. But we were working on it six years ago. Carzoo's and Easy Auto are pretty much the same model. It's just Easy Auto was bigger and it had more losses and was more invested in. But effectively, Carzoo's and Easy Auto are in fact the same business model but we're going with one brand being the easy auto moving forward that's been 10 years in the making by both AHG and by eagers so the ability to adapt is why eagers is a great investment for the long term and look we had a great uh, run for a period of time and then the regulators came and changed the rules now they have every right to do that and a company has to be able to adapt We have had a short period where Eagers has not grown as fast over a three- to four-year period between sort of 2016-2019 before we bought AHG and before, ironically, the rest of the industry started to accept that major change was required.
1: And those changes were around finance, insurance and offering finance to customers.
2: So the regulatory change on how we and the rest of the globe had done finance for 25, 30, 40 years suddenly got changed over a two to three year period. You may say two to three years is not a sudden change, but the announcement that changes were coming affected it, then the regulatory changes. Now, again, I'm not disputing those regulatory changes and we have adapted and that's no problem at all. But it did pause our business model for two or three years as we adjusted. The reality is I'm I'm as excited as I've ever been about where Eagers currently sits in both its existing core business of franchise automotive and the changes that are coming that we're allowed to change the cost bases we've already talked about with the changes of omni-channel retailing. And I'm super excited by the Easy Auto model. When you add the Easy Auto model to the core changes of the Eager's core model, this is probably the beginning of one of the most exciting periods over the next decade for the Eager's uh, Business, So um, I, I'm more excited than I've been for a long time, Matthew.
1: And you've you've experienced two that I can recall, absolute wipeout periods in the time that you've been running Eagers. The first was the GFC, which was a financing crisis and a lot of cars is based on finance. The second was this year when you yep. had the coronavirus and all of a sudden everything stopped. And no one knew exactly what was going on. Both times created terrific opportunity for investors. But are those two big changes that took place and downturns, did they accelerate the change in your industry?
2: Absolutely, they've accelerated the change. And two things. In the first one, which was the first time I'd experienced ever anything of that magnitude, we did a couple of things that were different than a lot of ASX stock exchange companies. The first thing is, we didn't raise any capital at very low rates when things change. We battened down the hatches and we sourced cash from every available source other than diluting our shareholders. That was a really important component at the time in that credit crunch period. We um, uh, reduced our expenses and we lived and cut our cloth to whatever we could afford at the time and we grew rapidly. Over the following four or five year period, uh, in fact, more like seven or eight year period until the regulatory changes appeared that we just spoke about. COVID is no different, except that as you point out, it wasn't a, a credit crunch. But again, our share price dropped to rock bottom. We didn't issue cash uh, um, issue any um, stock. We found alternate ways to source cash. We cut our cost base by $100 million in this last 12 months. a $100 million cost-based change is phenomenal. If you'd said to me that we could have pulled that off, I would never have believed you. So the reality is the playbook on what occurred in the second crisis, even though the second crisis was a very different one and the rebound has been hugely, um, uh, much faster than we expected, but... The playbook was the same. source the cash from other sources. We got it from Toyota and Volkswagen, Batten down the hatches, and now it is absolutely accelerating the manufacturer's view on the cost changes. And as I said, we are probably in the best possible position that we've been in in the last 10 years.
1: Well, I look forward to the next 700% over the next 15 years. But what, what, what do you think the biggest threat to the businesses now? Is it something from left field like the manufacturers going directly to the consumer like Dell did with computers or is it some of the issues we've talked about? What can derail the company?
2: Look, one of the things we've been doing is we've been simplifying it. You're aware that after we took over HG, we got rid of refrigerated logistics. Um, we, um, uh, um, we, we're we doing everything we can to reduce the risk in this Company and uh, look, I I can't say uh, too much at the moment, Matthew. But we're doing further things right at this very moment that are actually going to make this company less risky as we go into twenty twenty one and twenty twenty two. So um, we're I already pointed out we're in the best possible position in terms of some of the cost bases that we've changed. Um, we're almost ready for the. Um, uh, the benefits of things like the Brisbane Auto Mall over the next couple of years, the shopping mall, the omni-channel investments that we've been making. And the rest of the industry is only beginning to start working on these changes. And we've already been working on them for a decade and we're almost ready to execute them. So you might find this a strange comment, but we know that there'll be some other Hiccups, And we know there will be some other curveballs. We don't know exactly what they are, but we genuinely, with the few things that we haven't announced yet that will come over the next three or six months in terms of announcements, we have genuinely got this company into what we believe is the best position we've been in for a decade. And if I go back a decade to 2010, we were still growing at 15% compound Um, earnings per share growth back then, Matthew, and I think we are in a better position today than we were then.
1: Just on one of those changes, just to tie up the loose ends here, one of the things that you've done over the years has divested property because a lot of Australian car dealership owners have got rich on the land rather than the business that they sat on for so many years. Eagers systematically went about changing their property portfolio, but generally reducing it in recent times and we're talking in the last 6 to 12 months you've actually used cheap funding from various sources that you've talked about before and you've been buying land back is that part of that is that part of that um you know making a bulletproof
2: business well uh, let, let me just um disperse a myth um so you said that over the last few years we've been selling property Let me just clarify. When I arrived, we had $140 million of owned property. Yes, we were a much smaller company and um, we grew to about $350 million. And then over the last couple of years, uh, you have seen us sell some stuff. But the misnomer there is that we have bought and sold a lot of property in the last 15 years to adapt our business. And the stuff that you've seen us sell over the last two or three years, most of it was in Newstead, was in order to get ready to relocate to the airport. Okay? So the timing of what we sold a couple of years ago in Newstead was to allow us to maximise the price of those properties, put a lease in place so that we were then ready to move to the airport. What you've now seen is that we've taken over a company that owned no property. We've taken over a company that effectively had $1.6 billion of leases and virtually no control over those leases because a lot of them were long-term. This is automotive. This is automotive holdings. So in the last, um, we bought $231 million of properties in the last 60 days. But all those properties are properties that we're already using. We've lowered our liability by paying lower interest rates to our uh, captive financiers, Toyota and, and uh, Volkswagen, and the, the amount of money that we're paying to Volkswagen and Toyota is a lot lower than the money that we were paying to landlords. Plus, we've gained control over those properties. So the only reason that we need to own certain properties is to gain control over them so we can adjust and adapt. And in most of those stories, and I won't repeat all of them on this podcast, but in most of those stories, we've been buying properties to reconfigure. So we're buying Castle Hill in Sydney to reconfigure a whole range of others. We've just moved Easy Auto onto that site in the last two weeks, and we're moving Carlin's onto that site. We're going to save $2 million of rent elsewhere that are going to move onto that site. Um, we would have paid $45 million in rent on that site through to 2017. Uh, sorry, not 2017, 2027. Now we're going to own that property. Um, we bought a number of properties in Mount Gravatt in, uh, in Brisbane where we need to reconfigure. We're going to move our Toyota um, showroom from down the road on another own property. We're going to sell that own property and we're going to move Toyota to these properties. Effectively, in South Brisbane, we're going to go from 10 locations to six. So the reason that we've spent $231 million on property, Matthew, is in order to gain a valuable asset, in order to give us flexibility to be able to adjust our um, these glass boxes that we've been talking about, plus every single one of them, we're paying... Um, you know, we're paying under 3.5% on uh, 10-year money and in some cases under 3% on 10-year money and we were paying 6% to um, 8% yields when we were leasing these for the next 10 or 12 years or so. So it's about the flexibility um, rather than uh, that we're just trying to have uh, an asset heavy. The easy auto model, just to clarify is a very asset-like model over the next 15 to 20 years. So please, I don't want people to assume that owning property makes this an asset heavy um, thing. It's to reconfigure. And Matthew, we've almost never sold a property without making a profit. So um, we've made some considerable gains on these properties. The ones we just sold last year in Newstead, we sold for hundred dollars uh, 118 million dollars, and they're on our books for 60. So um, again, it's not like we haven't created substantial shareholder return out of those um, out of those asset heavy um, uh, assets at the same time.
1: No, you've done a great job there. So it, I know market shares is not something everyone likes to talk about in the industry, but if you go forward, say the next 10 or 15 years, or maybe 15, because that's what you've been in the job for already does your market share just steadily climb where you end up with 25 30 percent of the market
2: well the first thing is we never care about market share because it is just ego driven and it's all about having a sustainable business so um, we've actually sold um, uh, and disposed of at least a dozen businesses this year since the since January the first and um, Internally, I've used the word pruning in the past, but effectively, um, we're always going to have weaker parts of our business. And so if we find something that isn't working today and there's no sustainable reason why we think we can fix it or that the manufacturer's business model is going to allow us to run it profitable running forward, we will find a way of disposing of it. So um, you're probably going to find, I think I've mentioned this to you in the past Matthew, the merging of AP Eagles and AHG into now the combined eagles automotive. We always expected to look at about a reduction of 10% of the merge group before we then went in the other direction and then grew. So here's what I think it will end up being. We're around 12% of the industry today and we may well drop down to 10 or 11. And then I think we might organically grow through these new business models up to fifteen to twenty percent over the next ten years without having to buy new businesses. So that's where I think Egers will go over the next ten years.
1: Wow! All right, Martin. Given that you're an Englishman who moved to Australia, I'm sure you're a big fan of US country music and uh, <laughs> <Ian Elfman. laughs> in particular Will really it's a bit like Nicky's going to live forever. And, and at 86 earlier this year, he recorded a song called Our Song. And the opening lines to that song is, in this time that I've been given to fill my life with living, I hope I've done the best that I can do. So uh, the question is, have you done the best you can do?
2: Oh, look, um Eagers in particular is a unique company and and, uh, um, Keith Thornton, who's my COO and has been my right-hand man for the last 15 years. Keith and I have always talked about the fact that um, we're custodians of the business for a relatively short period. When you work for a company that's 108 years old, I look at the fact that I've been custodian for 15 years. I I think I have done um, – well, hopefully – Look, I should be judged by others. I think I've done a a good job over that 15 years. I'm proud of where we are. But i got to say as well, um, I I think this company will continue to deliver over the next 15 years, with or without me, because clearly I'm not going to be here in 15 years' time. Uh, When you said 86 there, I thought you were referring to Nick. He's nowhere near 86. He's not even 80 yet. That was
3: Willie. That was Willie.
2: Look, i I got a lot more to do in my life and uh, and some of it's personal and some of it's business. And uh, um, whilst I don't have the same aspirations of uh, um, living, unfortunately my mum has passed away already. So when I look at Nick with a uh, 102-year-old mum, look, I'm – I'm proud of what I've produced so far, but um, there's still many, many years to produce uh, a lot more, both business and personally.
1: It sounds like you're just cranking the machine up.
2: Martin, thank you
1: very much for your time. It's been enlightening and it's always a lot of fun to chat.
3: Thanks very much.
2: Thank you very much.
3: Thanks for tuning in to Success and More Interesting Stuff, hosted by Matthew Kidman and presented by Livewire Markets. This has been the final episode in this special podcast series, but please don't unsubscribe. We'll be back at a later date with a new mini-series. In the meantime, Livewire's Rules of Investing, hosted by me, Patrick Polk, is about to fire up again for 2021. We've got some incredible guests lined up for you already this year, including Steve Johnson from Forager Funds, Kathy Wood from ARK Invest, and David Mobley from Paradise please jump over to the Rules of Investing channel on Apple Podcasts or Spotify now and hit that subscribe button so that you're notified whenever an episode goes live. We hope you enjoyed listening to success and more interesting stuff presented by Livewire Markets.